Alright, what's up everybody? Welcome into a, another episode of Crunch Time with Cruck. I believe it is Season 2, Episode 6. Uh, we got a full slate ahead of us today. Not a whole lot of guest speakers. Um, getting back to the basics. It's going to be a lot of me. So I hope you like to either hear my voice or hear what I have to say. Um, we do have Corey is back talking about the semifinals in the NBA playoffs. And then Tim Hackett as as once again, uh, keeping up with hockey for us. So before we get there, um, the Summer Olympics are right around the corner, and there's a lot that we really need to talk about before we get there. The Summer Olympics were postponed last year because of COVID-19. Um, I don't remember if anybody else really remembers that, but as a huge sports guy, uh, it was postponed. Very sad day. But now they are back. Simone Biles has claimed her 7th U.S. Gymnastics Championship. So going into, you know, the Olympics for gymnastics, she's the person to beat. I don't care who you ask, uh, what really what really the thing is, but she is the person to beat. Um, shaking off a somewhat sloppy start on Friday in the U.S. Gymnastics Championship, uh, I mean, at least to her standards, it probably wasn't sloppy to most people. Uh, Biles put on a four-rotation showcase that highlighted why a GOAT embodied a nod at her status as the greatest of all time has become a fixture on her competition, Lechard. Now, this is by an associate press that I'm reading off of ESPN. These aren't my words. I'm just reading them for you uh, from ESPN. It's a great article if you get the chance to read it. Title is Simone Biles Claims 7th U.S. Championship. Uh, it's published June 6, 2021. It's a really great article to read. But, you know, looking looking at that, she has been the greatest for a long time, you know, there was that one summer where everybody was talking about, you know, Gabby Douglas. And I remember they made a big deal about how Douglas, you know, jumbled up spells U.S. gold. And I thought that was pretty, you know, pretty kind of cool, I guess. Um, but, yeah, Simone Biles, she probably is the GOAT. You know, seven U.S. championships is kind of hard to beat. Uh, doing a great job keeping things going, keeping things moving. Uh, other things to look for in the Summer Olympics. The basketball team is getting put together as Phoenix Suns' uh, Devin Booker joins Bradley Beal in committing to the Tokyo Olympics, sources say. So the team's going to be full of stars, so that's definitely going to be something to look out for, and it's going to be fun to watch. Uh, let's see if I can get a, a full list of stars here for you. Uh, the U.S. is also expecting uh, Draymond Green to be on there. He was in the 2016 uh, gold medalist team, as well as Jason Tatum. Uh, they already have Damian Lillard. They have Devin Booker, as mentioned. They have Bradley Beal. Um, you know, just... Great talent so far. LeBron James may be a no-show in the Olympics. They like to keep it, you know, kind of on the younger side if possible. Um, KD hasn't, you know, 
hasn't really said if he wants to be in it yet. LeBron James and Jimmy Butler have already decided not to compete, uh, you know, for various reasons. But uh, USA Basketball has been aiming towards filling the 12-man roster for an Olympics by the end of this month. Um, we're going, we're going for four straight golds in the Olympics. So that would be quite awesome if we could do it. You know, honestly, you look around the league, the NBA, and most of them are Americans. Uh, the last three MVPs weren't from America. Giannis being the MVP twice in a row, and then Nikola Jokic just recently being named MVP and then knocked out of the playoffs. So it's kind of bittersweet for him. Um, but it's happened a lot recently when you really think about it. Dirk Nowitzki, when he won his MVP, uh, he had just been knocked out of the playoffs. Nikola Jokic won MVP and knocked out of the playoffs. Both times, Giannis won MVP, knocked out of the playoffs. Not really looking too good if you're named MVP. So, you know, there's it's kind of a bitter, bittersweet moment. Uh, since we brought up basketball, we're going to head over to Corey. Corey, what do you got for us? Take us on a ride. Hey Croc, thanks for having me back on the show this week for another episode of Crunch Time with Croc. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Corey, and I'm going to be talking about the conference finals matchups we have so far, so let's get into it. In the West, we have the Suns versus the Clippers. In the East, we have the Bucks versus the winner of the Sixers-Hawks series. I'm going to start out talking about the West, then I'm going to get into the East a little bit more. In the West, we have Chris Paul. He's going to be out for the Game 1 and possibly Game 2 due to COVID safety protocols. Kawhi is also expected to, be miss, or expected to miss Game 1 with the knee injury he had. He missed Game 5 and 6 in the Jazz series due to that injury. We, have, uh, we had Paul George go off against Utah in Game 5. He had 37 points. We had Terrence Mann go off in the game six with 39 points, which is his career high. I feel that um, the Suns losing Chris Paul is probably a bigger deal than the the Clippers losing Paul or Kawhi Leonard right now. Chris Paul provides a lot of the offense to the Suns. He starts it and gives a lot of shots to uh, Devin Booker. Kawhi Leonard, he's very big key in the Clippers game, but with the Clippers players stepping up and playing like they do, it's been really good for them and they can still win without him. Paul George is able to get to the hoop quite a bit in the six in the Clippers Jazz series. So I think you should look for him to do that more against the Suns due to the smaller defenders that the Suns have. The Suns are also a less defensive-oriented team than the Jazz are, so I think that'll allow for more offense in the Clippers. If Kawhi is also able to come back for Chris Paul can, then that will also be an advantage for the Clippers because they can take a bigger lead to get the series up 3-0 or possibly 2-0 before Chris Paul comes back. Switching over to the Eastern Conference, the Bucks got into the Eastern Conference Finals by a miracle almost. They beat the Nets. They survived a last-second shot by Kevin Durant at the buzzer in overtime. 
they also, the reason the game was set in overtime was because Kevin Durant hit a deep two. His foot was in the line to send it overtime. Personally, I think this could have been an easier one for the Bucks if P.J. Tucker didn't foul out early in overtime. I also think this could have been an easier one for them if Giannis took less three-point shots and took it more to the post. He shoots about roughly one to, er, he shoots about one to four threes a game, and he usually makes about one of those threes. If the Bucks end up playing the Hawks in the conference finals, I would look for Giannis to drive for the basket more because the tallest player on the Hawks is six foot ten and Clint Capella, and Giannis is estimated to be six foot eleven or seven feet. Since he has a two-inch advantage over him and really long arms, he can extend past the defender to go up for layups and hook shots around the basket. Switching over to the Sixers-Hawks matchup tonight. I think that the Hawks will have to have a big game from Trey Young in order to keep it, in order to keep the game close. I think the Sixers will have to play hard the whole time down the stretch, and I think they'll also have to do what they did in Game Six, which is sub out Ben Simmons whenever there's an opportunity where the Hawks need to foul. This is because Ben Simmons has a low free throw percentage of 32.8%. From free throws. I think this can be costly for the 76ers down the stretch if they plan on keeping him in because the Hawks can potentially just hack away at him, force him to shoot free throws, and get the rebound to take down the court where Trey Young can shoot about 34% from three and about 44% from the field. The Hawks play very high paced offense, which causes them to score more points. If they speed it up, then the Sixers will probably slow it down and throw it into Embiid on the other side of the court. Embiid has had... Joel Embiid had 39 points in Game 1 and 40 in Game 2. He took a little bit of a cold streak in Game 3 and 4 with 27 and 17 points in those games. He bounced back with 37 in Game 5 and then 22 in Game 6. Them winning Game 6 with him only scoring 22 points shows that the 76ers can win without Joel Embiid having to put up 40-point games each night. But I think that in order for the Sixers to win this game, they'll have to have a big game from him, above 35 points. He's a big key for them. That's where most of their offense comes from. And I think that in order for them to match Trey Young's point total and the Hawks' overall scoring totals, I think they'll need a big game from Joel Embiid, and they'll also need Ben Simmons to step it up. They'll also need Seth Curry to be on fire tonight and hit his usual threes. The Sixers will also need to step up their free throw shooting. They shoot only 68% from free throws this season, and they also had only Steph Curry and Joel Embiid score points in the second half. They scored 12 second half baskets and they had 38 of their 44 second half points. Despite that, they only lost by three, and I think that as long as they do better, they can handle the Hawks and move on to the Eastern Conference Finals. They'll be playing the Bucks, and I think this could be an even matchup with Joel Embiid going against Giannis. I think that if the 
sixes move on to play and the and the box play the sixes with Joel and Beatty and Giannis. That Giannis might have somebody that plays about his level as far as defending him. And he can also Joel and Beatty can also hold Giannis to less points than usual. For those reasons I think this will be a pretty good series. I'm rooting I'm gonna be watching the game and I'm gonna be rooting for the Sixers. Thanks, Corey. Uh, that video was recorded around 5 o'clock, uh, June 20th, uh, Sunday, June 20th. So it was done before the game. Now that the game is over, you know, Atlanta beat Philly, so Atlanta's going to move on and play the Bucks. Um, you know, sorry, Corey. Your team didn't win. Um, but I am wearing my Rockford Rivets uh, sweatshirt. Uh, Corey and I went to a Rockford Rivets game not too long ago. Uh, he took his grandfather and grandmother. Um, and then I also brought along a friend as well. And we had a great time uh, just, you know, just at the local baseball game. And it was it was a really fun game to go to. If you're ever in Rockford, in the Rockford area, definitely make sure to check out a Rockford Rivets game. Uh, it's a great atmosphere. It's a great ballpark. You'll have a lot of fun there. And, I mean, it's not too overly priced for a baseball game. But, yeah, uh, the Atlanta Hawks ended up beating the 76ers. So the Atlanta Hawks will be playing the Milwaukee Bucks moving forward in the Eastern Conference Finals. On the other side, the Western Conference Finals, Chris Paul was out for the Suns, as well as Kawhi Leonard was out for the Clippers. So both teams, without one of their two big stars, played today. Phoenix Suns ended up winning the game 120 to 114 over the Clippers. The Clippers were led by Paul George, playoff Paul, who's for the most part actually been deserving of that name so far this postseason, really stepping up his game without Kawhi Leonard. And then Devin Booker's just been on another level so far. Uh, he, I believe he's one of the people in the upcoming Space Jam movie. But uh, I'm not for certain on that. But anyways, he's playing otherworldly. Otherworldly. That's the little connection I'm trying to make there. If you guys followed it. Yeah, he's out of this world. I mean, he's been playing lights out. He had a triple-double today with around 36 points. I mean, it's he's a point guard putting up, you know, almost prime LeBron, prime, you know, D-Wade numbers. It's... It's honestly something that really should be watched because, you know, he's not a kind of guy who's just going to put these numbers up in the playoffs. He's the kind of guy who puts these numbers up whenever he has to. You know, he's dedicated to carrying the team, and that's something that is honestly, you know, something that I honestly prefer to watch. A lot of honesties there now that I just realized it. Uh, but looking at the stat sheet, Paul George ended the game with 34 points um he was seven for eight at the free throw line he was seven for 15 beyond the arc that's a lot of shots to put up out there but he played 39 minutes of the game so you know it was a pretty good pretty good job uh looking at another player reggie jackson was four for 12 from beyond the arc and he only had 24 points but, you know, it's just none of them were really shooting the ball all that well from beyond the three-point line. 
as a team, they were 20 for 47, so right around the 42% range. Uh, at, the, at the free throw line, they were 14 for 17. It's not, not a terrible day at the office. Looking down at it, Devin Booker actually had 40 points. He was 3 for 7 from beyond the arc, so he did the majority of his damage in the mid-range and in the paint as he was 15 for 29 as well as 7 for 7 at the free throw line. He ended up with 12, or excuse me, 13 total rebounds, 11 assists. He had three personal fouls, and he only turned over the ball twice. Another player to look at is Payne. Payne was having a great day today. Cameron Payne, his plus minus, so his differential while on the court was plus 14. So the team was just playing better with him out there on the court. He ended the day with only 11 points, but his defensive presence was none other. He ended up with one steal, one block. He ended up with five personal fouls, which happens when you play good defense. You know, some calls just don't go your way. Uh, three rebounds and then nine assists, so doing a great job moving the ball around, keeping players happy. And that's pretty much the breakdown of the first game of the Western Conference Finals. Looking forward uh, at the next at the next game for these two teams. Honestly, it's it's up in the air who's who's really gonna win it. I can't say right now. You know who I'm gonna prefer. ESPN out the gate is preferring the is preferring the Suns by a seven percent uh, clip. They say. Phoenix Suns by 57%, Clippers by 43%. Uh, the spread is three points, or excuse me, the spread is six points, three baskets. And then the over-under is 224. So they're expecting a decently scored game, you know, both teams getting around 112 points. But looking at it, you know, the, the Suns just came off a sweep for the Nuggets. Four-game sweep. They just played the Clippers, and they won that game as well. So, you know, that is that's like six or seven straight wins. I don't think they can keep up this dominance, per se. Uh, I think they're going to end up dropping a game, one or two games, uh, soon. But... So far, they've been looking really good. Really good. Uh, the Bucks and the Hawks to look at. Chris Middleton has been playing like a true all-star. When he made the all-star game, you know, it was kind of like, is he really an all-star? Like, we couldn't get anybody better to play. Now he's playing in the playoffs, and this guy's like, yeah, 15 rebounds, no big deal. Four for seven beyond the arc in the first half, no big deal. 38 points, nah, no big deal. Giannis is over here trying to keep up with him. Giannis is like, okay, you know, I got 35 points, you know. Nobody want to talk about me, huh? Uh, 15 rebounds, you know, I, I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. The Bucks, in my opinion, are not a floor-stretching team. They cannot hit the three ball consistently enough to be taken seriously at the perimeter but at the same time, they have players, when they're hot, they're hot. 
so you can't really leave the three-point line open in the first quarter first half if you come out second half and they're still not hitting the three ball i would sit back in a two three zone and just let them have it because Giannis started shooting threes early in the year and it kind of panned out he's done with shooting threes chris middleton he can hit the pull-up mid-range shot right he'll back you down he'll turn around and he'll hit the kobe fader not the traditional kobe fader but a but a form of a kobe fader but that's a mid-range shot. The rest of the players on the team are mainly defensive players with a little bit of offense to go with them. Not a whole lot of offense brought to the table by the other three, but there is enough to be, you know, you have to guard them seriously. Now on the other side, the Hawks are a floor-stretching team if I've ever seen one. Trey Young will pull up from Damian Lillard range and make it look normal and people aren't giving him the credit for it you know john collins he is going to body up Giannis Antetokounmpo. the only problem i see with that and this is personally just me some players get superstar calls and you know like honestly you'll see it too uh, lebron james will get away with you know an extra step on a travel or you know, Derrick Rose will get away with something on the Knicks. You know, superstar calls here or there. James Harden will flop when he wasn't touched. He'll get a call. You know, Kevin Durant will go drive the lane, wasn't touched, but he'll still get the call. There are superstar calls. If Giannis Antetokounmpo starts to get superstar calls against John Collins, the game could be changed very quickly. Has Giannis got superstar calls in the past? Not really. He's had to fight for his contact. He's really had to force himself, you know, through the paint to the line and almost had to, like, sell contact to make the refs really see that he's getting pushed around like this. But if the refs give him superstar calls, I think the Bucks are going to take it in six because not that the refs make that big of a difference in a game, but they make that big of a difference in a player's head, especially young players. Now, John Collins has been in the league for a little bit. Trey Young's been in the league for a little bit. But Trey Young has already gotten in trouble telling refs to open their eyes. John Collins, if you know, if he gets it in his head, hey, I can't play defense against this guy. They're just going to make bad calls. That's in his head now. Like, that's up here. And as a player, you're the only person who can control your head. So you have to be able to take it in consideration and be like, all right, I have to move forward now. I can't get stuck on this call. But honestly, looking at the stats between the two, it should be a very close series. I give it, I give it Bucks and six. I think the Bucks are going to make the finals, and then I think they're going to lose to the Suns. So my prediction last time wasn't right because the Nets, you know, the Nets didn't really pan out. But I still have the Suns winning it all. So that's going to be fun. Uh, we're going to take it to Tim Hackett now for some Hockey Talk. Tim, take it away for us. What do you got? Hey, Croc, it's Tim Hackett in Kansas City. Thanks again for having me on the show. We are halfway toward determining the two teams who will compete in the Stanley Cup Final here in the 2021 season. I want you to think about this. 
under normal circumstances in the Stanley Cup Final, it would not be a surprise to see two teams that match up that didn't play each other much, if at all, in the regular season because it's normally Eastern Conference versus Western Conference, and there's only so much inter-conference play that happens in the regular season. So seeing two teams that met maybe once in the regular season, maybe zero times in the regular season, isn't a surprise. But this year, in the semifinal round, the Final Four round, because this year is so weird and unprecedented and all of that, these semifinals are the first time that any of these four teams are playing a team outside of their division all year. The regular season was all intra-divisional. You're playing the other six or seven teams in your division exclusively. The first two rounds of the postseason was all intra-divisional. You only played teams inside of your division. So this is the first time that any of these teams are playing teams outside of their division. And with that said, usually when you play a team, when a team plays a team in the postseason that they don't haven't seen very often, there's what's we, there's what is what we call a feeling out period. For the first 10 minutes or so of the first game of the series, teams don't really do very much. You don't see a whole lot of high-paced action. Teams kind of pass around and try to suss out what the opponent is going to do defensively in their lineups and schematics and all that stuff. We saw that in the Islanders and Lightning series, which I thought was a surprise, seeing as those teams played in the, sem in the semifinals last year. But we did not see that in the Vegas and Montreal series, which meant that that game one was wide open and was a ton of fun. And I thought that was a surprise, seeing as those two teams have only met lifetime, I think, seven times before this series. Remember, Vegas joined the NHL in 2018, and Montreal is a longstanding franchise, but they only played like seven times before this postseason series. And now that this series has started, Montreal, a little bit of a surprise, but maybe we shouldn't be surprised by them anymore. They have a 2-1 to -one series lead. The reason why Vegas was dominating Game 3, I mean, get this, Vegas outshot Montreal 30-8 to through two periods in Game 3. That doesn't necessarily mean a lot if your shots are all coming from the back end from your defensemen and they're all not high-quality chances, but they've gotten high-quality chances on Carey Price in this series, but the Montreal goaltender has been up to the challenge. The Vegas forwards need to do more. Their forwards have scored two goals in this series. The rest have come from defensemen, and even in Game 1, where the Vegas offense was great and they won that game 4-1, to three of those goals came from D-men. So the forwards need to be a whole lot better in Game 4 and going forward. The two goalies have been really good, as I mentioned, but Marc-Andre Fleury with a gaffe in Game 3, allowing Montreal to tie the game. Fleury tried to play the puck between his legs with just minutes to go, less than two minutes to go in regulation time. That allowed Josh Anderson, who hadn't scored in weeks, to swoop in and tap a puck with his backhand into an empty net. That is not a new thing. Marc-Andre Fleury has always been a goalie who likes to play the puck, even dating back to his days in Pittsburgh. He always did it, and it has cost him in the past, and it does again. Now, I have seen reports earlier on Sunday that Robin Leonard was the first goalie on the ice during the morning skate on Sunday. What that normally means is the first goalie on the ice during the morning skate is the goalie that starts the game that night. It's not a requirement, but that is almost always how it goes. I don't think that's the case here. I think this is a smokescreen from Peter DeBoer, and I would be super surprised if Robin Leonard starts Game 4, assuming that Flurry is healthy. That was a bad mistake from Flurry in Game 3, but I do not think it was a benchable offense by any means. Flurry has been excellent in this postseason, and Robin Leonard was really, really good in the regular season. That team won the Jennings Trophy, fewest goals allowed by a team in the regular season, so Leonard is certainly very good, but I would be really surprised if Flurry is healthy if Leonard plays in Game 4, but the offense ahead of whoever the goalie is 
has to be a whole lot better. Montreal has been very opportunistic, even though their head coach, Dominic Ducharme, is going to miss the rest of this series because he has to be isolated due to COVID-19 testing protocols. It's crazy, but that's the world that we live in. On the other side, Tampa against the New York Islanders. That series is all tied at two games apiece. The team that has scored first in each of those four games has won each of those first four games. The Islanders have never led this postseason after the first period, but they're still here two wins away from the Stanley Cup final. And I think they would say this series is right where they want it to be. I mean, get this. In the first round against Pittsburgh, the Islanders trail the series two games to one. They win the next three games. They move on. In the second round against Boston, the Islanders trail to the series two games to one. They win the next three games to move on. Here in the semifinal, the Islanders have trailed the series two games to one. They win game four, three to two, and now they are two wins away. Sensing a pattern here, I'm sure that Barry Trotz would love that pattern to continue, but it almost didn't. The Islanders scored three goals in the second period to go up 3-0. Tampa finally got some life back and scored twice in the third period to cut it to a one-goal game. And with seconds left, Ryan McDonough, a defenseman who was not known for his offense, with a sweet spin move against a very aggressive Semyon Varlamov, had the puck on his stick with seconds left in a wide-open net to tie the game and probably send it to overtime. And who knows what happens there, but Ryan Pollock, the Islanders' number one pairing defenseman, slides out of nowhere and makes the save on McDonough on a wide open net to preserve a 3-2 win for the Islanders and get the series tied at two games apiece. It's anyone's series now. That series continues on Monday. Back to you, Crook. You're 100% right that it's anybody's series, and thank you so much for being on the show. Your hockey talk is second to none on this podcast. Looking at baseball now, Brock Guzzi took the week off. Uh, he had some family some family obligations he had to attend to, but hopefully he will be back soon. Uh, the New York Yankees turn game-ending triple play versus Oakland Athletics. And if I'm not mistaken, this isn't the first triple play that they've had this year. The New York turned its record-tying third triple play this season to strand go-ahead runs in the ninth bailing out Aroldis Chapman for a shaky outing and closing down a 2-1 win over the Oakland Athletics on Sunday. This is an article off of ESPN News Center. And triple plays are not easy in baseball. They really aren't. Their first triple play was a traditional 5-4-3. This last triple play was a traditional 5-4-3. But their one of their other triple plays that they've had against the Blue Jays was a 1-3, and then it ended up being a 6-5-4-2-6. So what happened was, for those who you know aren't big nerds like me, there was a ground out to the pitcher, pitcher threw it to first. The runners on second and third both took off as if there were two outs when they realized there weren't they try to get back to their base and then they both got caught in rundowns the guy got tagged out between home and third and the guy on second ended up trying to get to third couldn't get there in time tagged out again so it was a force out two tag outs and base running this year has just been very 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 sloppy uh, more on baseball, Washington Nationals' Kyle Schwarber hits three home runs 
and then two in a previous game, which ties the record with five in two games. Five home runs in two games. That's the kind of baseball that people are getting used to nowadays because, you know, people want to see offense. Offense is the go-to. All these no-hitters we're having this year, which, think about it, we haven't had one in a while, knock on wood. But, you know, it's we haven't had one in a while, and offense is starting to kick back into the gear here. Schwarber hits five home runs. The designated hitter for the Orioles, whose name is slipping me right now, he hit three home runs in one game. Three home runs and three attempts. I mean, am I saying they're using juiced bats? Probably not. Are they using juiced balls? Probably not. They're just killing the ball. Uh, other things about baseball. Tampa Bay officially calls up shortstop Wander Franco. Wander Franco is the MLB's top prospect, and he's finally going to get called up. And, you know, he was playing with the Durham Bulls, another another great, you know, baseball team that I personally love. They're my favorite AAA baseball team. And he was hitting 315, you know, slugging 586, and his on-base percentage was 367. He also had seven home runs and 35 RBIs. Uh, he's getting called up. He's getting called up as a shortstop. Uh, he has played third base and second base. Um, you know, with Willie Adamas going to the Brewers, which so far hasn't, you know, hasn't really shot the Brewers in the foot. You know, they could they could play him at shortstop, but we won't know until the day of the game comes around. So make sure you tune into that game and get really good on that one. An easy transition from the MLB would be to the NCAA College or excuse me, College Baseball World Series. The secret behind Vanderbilt's one-two pitching combo. So Jack Leader and Kumar Rocky are the two best pitchers in NCAA baseball right now. Jack Leader at the beginning of the year was considered the first pick easily he was considered the trevor lawrence of the mlb draft right now this kumar rocker guy he's coming out and he's like hey there's another vanderbilt guy you got to think about before you draft so the sec will probably have the first two draft picks in you know this year's draft they both you know they both pitch quite differently you know they don't look alike on the mound they both pitch very differently um you know they don't even they don't even really look alike one of them you know is a taller white guy and the other one you know he's also a you know not as tall but you know he's just a normal african-american dude out there on the mound just throwing some dimes um his first uh leader's first SEC start was in March 20th. He walked the leadoff batter and then responded by retiring the next 27, 16 of them via strikeout. So 28 up, 27 down. Not bad. Um, Rocker is a six foot five, 250 pound guy. And, you know, it's just, he's out here throwing dimes. 
Leader, excuse me, I had him backwards. Leader is actually shorter. Leader's six one and two hundred pounds. So you know, leader's a more typical looking guy, and then you know you got a six five rocker who's out here, almost looking like the black version of Randy Johnson the way he pitches. And it's just these two are going to be some of the hardest threats in baseball to come whether it's right now NCAA or moving forward into the MLB because they both have huge fastballs. And it's not even funny to watch. Like, these guys are out here putting up numbers that I don't I don't think are real. Like, I would have to see somebody actually figure these numbers to understand them. Um, leader credits his father for helping him develop his curveball. Obviously... Uh, you all should remember his father. He played in the majors for a long time. One of the great closers back in the day. Uh, he's really been working on his curveball. And then Rocker's working on his slider. So whether they get you with the fastball or with the breaking stuff, there's not a good chance that you're going to be successful against this team in the long run. And then you can't forget about their offense. Their offense is great as well, too. But... Their pitching is really what stands out to me. Finally, we're going to wrap up on golf. So last time we talked about golf, I brought in my dad, and he talked about Phil Mickelson. I'm going to take a crack at it this time and talk about John Rahm, uh, who closes with two birdies to win the U.S. Open for his first major. He almost won his second major today, but in the last course, he was pulled from the tournament after three full rounds of play, because of COVID testing. He tested positive for COVID. And, you know, you guys probably remember my rant. Think of all the things he's touched, all the people he's met, all the, you know, whatever. All the different golfers he's interacted with. You know what? It finally came true. He was leading the pack in that last, you know, tournament by six strokes. He ended up losing. But today, he won at six under par. That's poetic justice for you. You know, the golf world, they'll be out on their own little tangent, you know, saying, oh, you know, he should have been, this should have been his second one. He should be going for the Grand Slam. But it's up in the air whether or not, you know, you think he deserved the perfect, perfect or not. I'm, con- I'm just glad he won. I'm tired of seeing the same people win everything over and over again. Uh, with the golf world in mind, um, any news about Tiger Woods is still scarce to hear about. Uh, hopefully his recovery is going well. We'd like to see him back out there uh, on the on the grass again. Just really hasn't been the same without him. You know, when he made that big comeback for the Masters win, you know, we, we all thought he's back. You know, like the prodigal son is back. And now he's just taking some off time after that very very scary car accident so hopefully he'll be back in time uh until next time if you're watching on youtube once again please like comment subscribe do whatever you want to do uh if you're listening to it on apple podcast spotify podcast wherever you get your podcast feel free to leave a couple stars uh if you leave a if you leave one or two stars i'd like to know what i can do for the podcast to make it better if you leave three four or five feel free to leave a comment as well um make sure you subscribe definitely and we'll see you next time same time same bat channel